All right, perfect, perfect. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Going live in five, four, three, two, one. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mix It Up with ML, this brand new podcast that I'm hosting where I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing at all, but I'm just going to try it. And here we go. Here goes nothing. So first episode of this podcast, we have Mona Clapier. Am I pronouncing that right? Jeez, Mona, the last name. Clapier, Clapier, whatever you want to go with, all correct. <laughs> That's kind of brutal because Mona's like one of my best friends and I just asked her how to pronounce her last name. So we're off to a rough start, but Mona Clapier, Clapier, whatever. Um, we have Mona here and Mona is an absolute stud and legend who is a Frisbee champion uh, at Princeton. We met at Princeton and we'll go into like how we met, but Mona is a Frisbee champion. She is a cooking icon. She cooks a lot. And so we're going to ask her a lot about her cooking. And Mona is also my near and dear pre-med buddy. So we've been through everything together. So we'll touch on a little bit of medicine, but basically this podcast it's called Mix It Up With ML because I try to mix it up every episode, talk about, you know, a variety of topics and just kind of go from there. So hopefully there's something for everybody. But yeah, welcome, Mona. Hi, Michael. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I am super honored to be the first guest on Mix It Up With ML. Don't quite know how I earned this spot, but <laughs> of course. Mo was the first person I thought of and she's already addressing the audience like anybody's going to listen so we'll see but I think so with Mona as the guest people will listen <laughs> so so yeah Mona let's just get right into it uh, I figure the first thing because we're both not famous um, at the moment I feel like people would want to know you know how we met and just sort of our backstory so we can talk a little bit about that but feel free to you know start it off yeah sure um, so Michael and I met at Princeton are literally I think day one of Princeton, we were on the same orientation trip. We had a community <laughs> service trip called Community Action at Princeton. Um, and we were on a healthcare focus group, I believe. And mm -hmm. so our group was filled with a bunch of aspiring pre-meds and that's how I <laughs> met Michael. <laughs> very um, fitting, very fitting. Totally did not think I would become best friends with him because I mean, you know, he's half, double my height. <laughs> <laughs> this basketball superstar and uh, didn't at all think we'd have any similar interests but um, that definitely was proven wrong in the subsequent years at Princeton so I would say we started being friends initially but then we became really close I think our junior year I think so um, Michael joined the same neuroscience lab that I was in Shout out Gould Lab. Gould Lab. Wearing this t-shirt did not mean to wear it, but <laughs> wearing it. But yeah, go Fun ahead. In fact, I almost wore it. Um, <laughs> and particularly after our junior year for the summer, we stayed on campus for two-ish months um, every day in the lab and also studying for the MCAT together. And so we and we were next door neighbors that summer. Indeed. <laughs> um, and so that's how we really got closer. And I don't know about you, Michael, but I think like you are the reason why I even made it this far in this med school cycle. So like, you know, you mean the world to me. So mm. this is so exciting to be a part of. Mona, you're very kind, but everybody who's listening, Mona is a superstar. So she would have made it this far. She's very kind though, but you're very right. We did forge, you know, I, I hadn't thought of it like that. Like when we became super, super close was definitely through suffering junior summer <laughs> with MCAT I didn't even, right like definitely because we were in the same classes like freshman sophomore yeah. year and then we joined cat which is our eating club yep. which you yep. can if you want to explain that a little bit but we joined cat together and then but it wasn't until junior year in particular the summer yeah it was cemented it was like joint struggle like nothing about that summer I regret and every experience For I sure. had there like made me who I am but like it's really helpful to have somebody there next to you that's going through both research and thesis and pre-med stuff right and just is an overall fun person to be around so <laughs> <laughs> likewise Mo. yeah like actually now you say that I remember when I feel like we were walking out of like physics or biochem and you were just telling me like oh like um, 
I think I'm going to take a gap year. Right. And so that might've been part of like why, yeah. you know, we hadn't like fully like connected at least on the pre-med level yeah. until then, because like you were like thinking about going direct into med school. Right. Yes. So for everyone who's listening, I was definitely so excited about going to med school and mm-hmm. didn't really even consider a gap year at all in the beginning. Um, not because I looked down on it, but really it was just like, there's this really long path ahead of me. Why delay it any longer? Um, but basically during junior year, I hit that point that I think everyone hits sometime in their lifetime. And for me, that was in college where like, I was just trying to do too many things and um, really took a toll on my mental health. And like, I talked to a, pe- a few people who had chosen to take a gap year and no one regretted it. And so it's like, okay, let me take the gap year. That'll allow me to spread out, you know, all the activities I'm doing, give more time to my friends, my family, um, and also like maintain sane (laughs) throughout it all. So yeah, that's when I decided to take a gap year and why I took the MCAT during the summer instead. Right, right. Because we, yeah, so we would have been doing research together that summer, like likely, right? Even if you had gone direct, but then it was like, you know, the after hours that we were also spending together. So that's definitely when we got closer for sure. Definitely. Okay. So, yeah. So I guess while we're on the medical topic, we can just kind of keep going that way. So uh, what are you doing this gap year, Mo? Um, Let the people know. I know a little bit, but I also want to ask you more about it and just like hear about sort of the nuts and bolts. I feel like we haven't talked about that too much. Sure, sure. So going into it, I knew I wanted to do something that was more medical focused because a lot of the research available research opportunities at Princeton were very, um, you know, basic science focused and not very clinical. Um, and for example, the lab that we worked in worked with mouse models and looked at um, like anxiety disorders and that kind of thing and neural circuits related to that, but it wasn't specifically working with patients and humans. And so I knew for the gap year, I wanted more of that kind of experience. Um, and I also wanted to do something that was sort of brand new to me, even within medicine. So previously I'd done some shadowing with like pediatric doctors or OBGYN doctors, um, but I had not really done too much in surgery. so I was looking for surgery slash clinical research assistant jobs. And then I ended up interviewing for the place I have now in February, um, the position I have now. It's a research assistant job in the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at Northwell, which is a health system in New York State. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, when I walked into the interview, what didn't even think it was going to be my top choice because it was out in Long Island and I would have to commute from New York City if I wanted to live in New York City. But I went and the people were so welcoming. Right. Um, my mentor, Dr. Tana, is like amazing, um, just so charismatic. And I knew I'd get a lot out of it um, the year. And it really, I'm glad I followed my instincts and took on the job because it's really been an amazing um, position and experience. That's super dope. So it's actually called like the surgical scholars program, right? (laughs) Yeah. So like, can you just tell me, yeah, like more about it? Like, I know you told me you're doing like two days at home most of the time, most like it could vary, right? But like maybe like three in clinic and then two at home. And so can you just tell me more about like, like, what are you doing? Are you doing clinical research? Or I know you're helping put on a conference and stuff like that. Maybe. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, a mix of a bunch of things, which I like about it a lot. A lot. So every day is a little bit different. Um, I currently work on a hybrid schedule because of COVID. So prior to COVID, the research assistants every year were going in um, five times a week. Right. But with my situation, they made it to so that I'm still getting the most out of like the inpatient, in-person patient interaction and surgery experience. Um, but then also minimizing unnecessary travel. Um, so the two to three days a week that I actually go in, it could be anything from I'm in the doctor's office shadowing a physician, seeing all of the pre-op and post-op um, meetings between the patients and the doctors. Um, it could also mean actually going into the OR and seeing the surgeries and actually standing at the table mm-hmm. and sometimes getting to scrub in as well, which has been super and crazy. Suture. And suture, I heard you're suturing a little bit. They're gonna they're gonna teach me and train oh, me. So super um, dope. 
which is so valuable to even know that yeah. before, know how to do that before medical school. So that's been so exciting. Um, and also just like being in the hospital environment full time is really cool. And it, it's been very reassuring because I realized that I actually enjoy it. Um, and I know now that I'm committing myself to a career that I know mm -hmm. I'm going to enjoy. So that's been great. Um, and then on the two to three days, depending on the week that I spend at home, it's more working on my computer. And rather than like a wet lab that we worked in at the Gould Lab, it's more mm -hmm. like working on the computer, working with data, maybe writing a few papers. Um, and the clinical research is very much focused on things like quality improvement for the specific procedures that they do mm -hmm. or um, how to shorten OR times and increase efficiency within the operating room and flipping cases and such. So um, yeah, and then we also do um, a few conferences throughout the year. So mm -hmm. I recently helped with a transgender care conference that they did at Northwell and basically was the contact person to sort of bring together all of these speakers and we did it over Zoom. So I helped handle that as well. Right. Um, and then we did a similar one for cleft and craniofacial care. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Damn, well, I, I literally have so many questions about that. Shoot. Yeah, so, okay, so awesome. Very, very cool, all those experiences. I love how you can do both, right? And I guess it's in the name, surgical scholar. So you get to do the surgery and like the yeah. clinical part of it, but then also the scholarship. Um, and just like the first thing off the top of my head was you were sort of drawing the comparison between the wet lab and then the clinical mm -hmm. research type thing. And I think that's really interesting for us to think about. And then, you know, anybody who's pre-med or, or anything listening yeah. to this, like, yeah. I, I felt like, so I was reading, you know, I love Atul Gawande. That's my boy. I love I'm him. I'm better right now. It's okay. on my table. You're reading it. No way. Yep. Okay. So, so yeah. So for the listeners, better is this uh, book written by Dr. Tul Gawande, who's kind of this all-star physician who he's a surgeon, but also a public health researcher. And, and like a lot of that public health stuff is clinical research. He's also an author, obviously, because he wrote this book. But long story short, in Better, he kind of talks about, you know, obviously we, we really need that wet lab, like basic research to like progress and find novel treatments and novel therapies, right? Um, and like genes that affect things and, and like figure that out because we don't know any of that. But he was saying like, it's also really important and we shouldn't snub our noses at like clinical research because you sort of look at that as like, basic is the world that we don't know much about. And then clinical research, you can kind of look at it as, you know, outcomes focused research. So looking at like the procedures that we have and then the treatments that we have, like what can we do to make those better and have improved outcomes? And he kind of was talking about when he went to India to do surgery with these surgeons who have far like fewer resources than him. Mm -hmm. And they were like doing surgeries better than he was doing them in America with far superior technology. So he's like, I don't know, I found that really interesting. And yeah. I don't know if what you think about sort of that comparison between basic and clinical. I don't know. Definitely. I think both are very important. Um, and what's cool about it is like, depending on the person's person, your personality, you'll find sort of a place in research that makes sense for you. I think, I don't know if you ever felt this, but as a pre-med, the pressure is sort of like, you need to be really into research and, you know, working in the lab and pipetting and <laughs> growing cell Life. cultures. And yeah. that stuff is awesome too. It's cool too. Um, mm -hmm. But then there's also, for me, I found quickly that it wasn't necessarily those days that I found exciting, but more like once I gathered the data and I looked at what was significant and what was the impact of that, like that was the more interesting part for me. And I didn't find the other stuff that exciting. Um, and I think that's true generally of all scientists, obviously the results are what's in enjoyable, but um, like, I, I do think you do need to be able to enjoy the process as well. And for me, my interests in science were very medical. And so the, the research, the type of research that I'm doing now is um, a lot more tangible for me because I can see exactly how it's going to impact the patient um, rather than sort of an abstract idea of like how my anxiety disorders develop in um, due to early life stress. 
for example, which was my mm. thesis. Um, Mo but, wrote a great now... thesis, everybody. Go check it out. <laughs> no. oh, go ahead. <laughs> um, I did the best I could during pandemic times. But um, yeah, I think both are very important. And the clinical research is definitely really cool. And seeing like all about what can we do better than what we have now, even if you like, there's always room for improvement. I exactly. Think. Um, and that's something that I've seen throughout my work here too is like you know they're like top plastic surgeons in the country and they've been doing certain procedures for years but all of them are very committed to finding ways to what they make do more efficient or better or easier for the patient um and it's really cool that they actually care about that too right yeah right and so like how are they are their schedules kind of split up the same way as you Right. Because, you know, both we're we're both kind of interested in surgery and like and also like potentially doing that sort of research. And so like does the surgeon that you shadow have like sort of a research day on the same day that you do or what's that breakdown look like? Um, So for them, um, they find time to do research outside of all their clinical duties and their clinical duties, I get a sense, comes first. Um, And so what's really cool about my position is very independent. So I'm not 24 seven with the surgeon. Um, And so for the surgeon, he is in maybe the office seeing patients, maybe 20, 25 patients a day, um, once a week. And he's on the sort of a lower end of the spectrum in the sense that like some of the surgeons that I work with see 50 patients a day. Um, But they spend one or two days a week in the office just talking to patients and checking up on them after surgery. And then I'd say three to four days a week, they're actually in the operating room. If it's a long procedure, they'll just have one case. If it's a couple short ones, they might have two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from what I can see from my mentor, at least, um, and I think every person sort of does it differently, but he does um, either stuff after the cases, like later in the afternoon, he'll just check some of my work or, you know, give me comments, feedback. And then he'll also take time in the, on the weekends, um, like weekend mornings, he'll look at stuff online and send me stuff. But I think it's really cool because he chooses to do that. Um, Obviously there are going to be times as a doctor where you do have to give extra time and it's not going to be your normal nine to five, but Mm -hmm. I know that at least with my mentor, he makes it a priority to do a lot of research. And, you know, he's 40 now. So it's not like he has to do a lot of research, Um, but he likes it. He enjoys it. That's why he devotes time to it on the weekends. Um, And even just like having me as a student, like he doesn't have to have a gap year student program, but he enjoys the mentorship Mm -hmm. and he likes being able to train young individuals and motivate them. So that's why he gives the time to do that. and I think that brings us to like, that we've discussed this before about like how it's really cool in medicine, you can kind of shape your career at least down the line into mm-hmm. focusing on what kind of things do you enjoy doing. Um, and for some people that might mean seeing patients five days a week and not working on research at all. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, like I, I feel like, in the academic setting, it seems like you can kind of like choose, pick and choose what you want to do within the academic setting. So like if you want to do research and operate or see patients and like medical education, right. And like mentorship yeah. and teach at the medical school. So it seems like at least I was speaking with my mom who, who is like a family physician and she's Mo knows. I, I always talk with her about I'm very fortunate to have her perspective and like her help to navigate all this. Cause I can't imagine it's already tough as tough as anything for me to do it. So she's been a great resource. Uh, but she was saying like in academic medicine, you can kind of go wherever you want with it and do those different things. And then if you want to go into private practice after that, you can, which yeah. was a very interesting thing, as opposed to like, if you're not sure, like just going into private practice, um, then maybe it's, I feel like it's harder to transition mm-hmm. into academic Um, So that was interesting to hear, but, but yeah. And then sort of on that research front, I was thinking about this. I wanted to get your, your ideas on this is like, have you ever thought about the relevance of, of coding to a doctor? Um, I think the medical field would 
very much benefit from people who are good coders and like it's lacking the medical field is lagging in that part and all of the people the talent is going to tech and you know maybe finance and but there's so many places where computer science would help in the medical world but also you and I know like when you're studying medicine it's hard to be jack of all trades no time um and like I have very, 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 very basic computer science skills from Princeton. Um, Did you take Coast 126? Coast 126. I didn't take it. I actually loved it. It was fun, but I don't know nearly enough to do anything, I think. Um, And also, I think statistical knowledge, like statistics, I know is a weak point for me, but um, is actually very, very helpful in science and in medicine particularly. Um, I know on the projects that we work on, we also have, we work with the statistic, biostatistics team at Northwell sometimes mm-hmm. on our projects because we want someone that's, you know, that's all that they do and that's really their forte. So, um, but yeah, I think it would be awesome if you could do both. Um, and that's something I, I think a lot of people or most people should take in college just to have the intro to it even if you can't do it yourself like having the framework of like what it's even remotely like I think is useful given the way our world is progressing right right yeah Yeah, like I'm a moron I didn't take it because I was I was worried about like my GPA and I was like I'm getting slammed so I can't take codes what it was a requirement for me to be oh, oh, for, for, for neuro. Neuro yeah. made you take it, which is smart because I was psych. So Mona was neuro, but we were in like the same lab because there's a lot of yeah. crossover. But that's so interesting because I asked because I was thinking about that from the research perspective, like at the very minimum, having coding skills for data science, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like I did clinical research one summer and like I was doing a lot of the literature work and, and like extracting the relevant data and helping write up like our study and everything. Yeah. But and like, I actually really like statistics and, and feel like I'm pretty good with it, but it's a difference between knowing statistics, like in an academic setting, and then being able to like, do like literally the data science process with your data to get everything that you need and all your data out there. So like the PI like did it, but she was a doctor and had all that um, ability. And I, Mo, are you frozen? I'm not sure if you're frozen, I might have a little lag. Mo, you there? Mo, you there? Sorry, I think it was cutting out. I think it cut out for a little bit. Can you hear me fine now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Where did I I, drop off? I think, I think I heard most of it. You were saying PI was doing most of it. Yeah. Okay. And so I was just thinking to myself, like, where did she get those skills? Or is she outsourcing that to like, you know, like the biostatistics team yeah. and everything. So I was just kind of thinking about that, you know, in my gap year, cause I have a little bit more time on my yeah. hands. I was like, damn, like, should I be kind of like exposing myself to tech like and everything? Yeah. 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 I think it's definitely an investment that will pay off. Um, right. But also I know it's hard to, it's, like I've taken a couple classes where I sort of learn different language. So I did like R in a poll stats yeah, class, a political same. science class. And then I did, um Julia in one of my neuromathematics mathematical tools classes and then mm-hmm. I did Python and it was just scattered all over the place and the languages are similar but different enough where it didn't build on top of each other um and now I feel like I don't know anyone in the language very right. well um but yeah I, I think if you spend even just like a couple months working at it I'm sure it's very helpful um yeah yeah I feel yeah it's it's definitely interesting to kind of see where the medical field was going and like you were saying like it's probably a useful skill given how our world is progressing and and our like medicine needs to be more just electronic in general I think so that's a very interesting thing and and uh we'll see where that goes but sort of on the on the vein of the gap year and you know just how it's been like sort of what's been you know some things bring you joy what's been some challenges over your gap year things you've learned just experiences you've had I know it's COVID so you know yeah. it's not what we had hoped for but kind of walk me through a little bit of your your gap year musings 
Yeah, um, I'll start off by saying it's, I've been very fortunate with my job, just the fact that I've even had an in-person component. And I, I feel like I'm not really missing out on that kind of professional development mm-hmm. um, side of my gap year. Um, and I'm very, very lucky to be able to say that. Um, I think the challenges, main challenges are the more personal ones that, again, like there are people that have been through so much worse during this time. But I think, for example, my family, my immediate family lives currently in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quarantined with my father from March to June of last year when our campus got shut down. Um, and then I haven't seen him since. Also, my mother, I haven't seen since last January so it's been full year now and my little sister as well so I think the toughest thing I mean it always has been tough to be far away from family but it's never been a situation where I can't go see him if I like I can't I physically just can't get on a plane and go see them without worrying about their safety or my safety so that's been tough um and then I lost my grandfather last year in the summer um and he was in Japan everyone's like where are you from they're confused I should probably explain and, and I'm gonna ask you about that so keep okay. going though yeah yeah um, no worries so my grandparents <laughs> sneak peek live in Japan um but my grandfather passed away not due to COVID but from leukemia last summer and so not being able to go see him and also not being able to comfort my grandmother in person has been tough um but that being said like we are all very healthy otherwise and we have FaceTime and we can text and call each other. Um, and like, there's not that much to complain about. Um, I think I found, so for example, you called me, you know, like Frisbee extraordinary or whatever in the beginning, which I don't think I deserve that title, especially now because I haven't touched a Frisbee in, since last March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Self-deprecating as always. Yeah. Well, no, no. Um, really, I haven't touched one. So I think like, that for example was a really great way for me to relieve my stress and also was a huge part of my social life in college um whereas now i I work out in my apartment and that's sort of the only like active thing i do now um and also i missing out on the huge social component which to be fair i'm actually not a huge extrovert but i Mm -hmm. think this time in quarantine has made me realize that there are things about talking to other people that really like (laughs) restore me and make me excited about life and Mm -hmm. um, even just like one-on-one conversations like this I know are important and I think I didn't realize that I always thought I was an introvert and um, didn't really like really hanging out with people all the time but Mm -hmm. yeah made me value those interactions more. I think your story is definitely very similar to mine and probably very similar to a lot of people, at least who are taking a gap year right now. So yeah. Like, yeah. What's it, what's it been like as far as, you know, as far as exercising, like what have you done? Cause I know, you know, we're very similar in terms of we both played club sports at Princeton and then like, you got to kind of transition away from the sport, especially with COVID, right? Like you can't play Frisbee. I can't play ball. So, um, what kind of exercises are you doing? Like, are you doing, are you a big yoga fan? I'm pretty sure. Yes. Yeah, so I do a lot of like hit workouts now. Okay. Home. Sometimes I do a little bit of Pilates. Um, and then I'm currently doing a yoga with Adrian 30 day challenge okay. on YouTube. Um, I'm, I've been, so I've never really gotten into meditation until I want to say the last two months. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, we could talk about that. I'm hyped to hear about that. Go ahead. I, I had this feeling that I needed to be more mentally aware. And I think I read an article about like working out your mind. Um, mm. And like, I thought, you know, like I work out my body all the time. You know, I do push-ups and try to build strength, but like I need to gain mental strength too. Not that I was weak before, but I think it's always better to be self-aware and things. So this like yoga challenge, the yoga itself isn't very intense, but there's a lot of focus on like your breathing and like, right. Con- not controlling, but listening to your thoughts and being comfortable with them. And I've done it for 21 days now, I think. Very and nice. I like see the difference. Um, like I can get myself to that like state of calm a little bit easier than when I first started it. So 
those are some things that I'm working on, but mostly I'm doing like hit workouts at home. I'm not a huge, um, you know, run for three miles, five miles outside kind of girl. Um, I, I used to run a lot for Frisbee to train for it, but, um, not so much now. And I realized you just have to find something that like works for you. Right. You know, and for me, that just happens to be 20, 30 minute intense workouts. And usually I just follow a video or something on YouTube or mm-hmm. whatever, Instagram, like so many people do lives now. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I've been impressed because I always thought that I needed a gym membership or access to a gym. And I've gone an entire year without one. Yeah. So, so many thoughts. I mean, everybody who knows me knows I could talk about meditation for forever. So I definitely want to ask you about that. Me. Yes. But like, I, th- I love the point you make about the gyms, which is like kind of sad also, because yeah. I feel like a lot of gyms are going to, I don't know. I feel like it goes two ways. I've heard people talk about it in terms of either in quarantine, you started working out way more <laughs> or like you lost all your yeah. workout. And yeah. like, I'm not trying to like brag or like, oh my God, like I'm doing great. But like, yeah. for me, I actually struggled a lot more to work out in the normal times. Like right. at Princeton, I was not getting to the gym the way I should have. Right. Um, I felt like I couldn't like juggle academics and social life and like, and get to the gym. It was like impossible for me. Yeah. So like, I've actually been more consistent with my workouts now. Um, so I feel like gyms might, I feel like they might lose like half of their, you know, clientele yeah. or whatever, but anyway, um, I just think that's interesting what you said. And then, so you're doing hit and yoga and then you kind of incorporate meditation into your yoga. So what's sort of your breakdown? Do you do hit like every other day and then yoga on the off days? Or like, how do you kind of work that in? So with my work schedule, um, I found that the days that I'm going in, it's just so hard for me to fit in um, (laughs) a full workout, especially because I commute out to Long Island. And so my commute ends up being at least an hour each way, Um, which honestly, if I made it a priority, I could probably fit it in, but I'm just not doing that. Mm -hmm. And but what's good about my schedule is two to three times a week, I'm also at home. So on the days I'm at home, I'm sitting all day at a desk. And so by the time five o'clock rolls around, I'm so ready to get out. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And so I usually do the HIIT workout and then I like cool down with the yoga. Okay. Yeah. And then some mornings, if I'm working from home, I'll also do sort of like a meditation in the morning before I start my day. Uh-huh. Have my little coffee or matcha or whatever I'm having that day. Um, and it's like a little routine. Right. But on the days I'm going in, I'm waking up early and I'm, you know, barely making it out of the door on right. time. So I, I'm just not pushing myself to do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if I work out necessarily as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, when I do, it's very intense and I like try to make sure it's worth it. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like sort of going back to circling back to it is like what you mentioned about it's so hard when you like the commute is a big factor. Like I, I feel like in terms of time and energy and everything, like that's what I need to work on is like con- mm-hmm. continuing my exercise habit when the commute becomes a thing again yeah. in the future. Right. Yeah. Like, so I actually try to work out in the morning because I struggle to like after I'm sitting for a lot of the day, I like struggle to get that energy. So like, I'm not sure how that's going to go when I have to commute in the morning. But what I love about like, you were saying you sort of incorporate meditation and mindfulness into your yoga. I feel like that's really important for just people to hear in general, because I think there's this idea in in culture, like that's going to take a long time to like get rid of, but it's like meditation has to be like, um, like that yeah. sort of thing where, where like you're in this crazy state and like there's no like distractions and it's just not the same as real life yeah but I think like the idea at least in my meditation practice that I kind of work with and think about a lot is you, you know you can have those 10 minutes or whatever where you're just sitting down and doing it but what really matters is that you kind of live mindfully and you yeah. do your daily activities mindfully right and I think yoga is a great way to get into that mindful you know state while you're in daily life and not just sitting on a pillow cushion or whatever right so I just think that's so interesting and and good for you and so that's through a YouTube video or somebody's doing that with you um I so there's two things I do depending on the day so I do yoga with Adrian sometimes and who's Adrian influencer 
she is a like yoga youtuber she's been on youtube for years okay. um and she does very she's so soothing and calming and she has a dog in every one of her videos it's the best um Critical. and then i sometimes use insight timer which is a app on the phone right. but that brings me to headspace we need to talk about your headspace achievements no no <laughs> um if everyone doesn't know michael is like <laughs> I'm talking about mindfulness, like, <laughs> I know what I'm talking about, but like Michael, Michael is the real veteran here no. when it comes to meditation. Um, would you care to talk a little bit more about that? Mo putting me on a pedestal, I'm fairly here, <laughs> but yeah, so I use Headspace, which is like a meditation app, and I feel like what I like about it is sort of a lot of what I just said, and I think these are becoming more and more popular now, but at least when I started like four years ago, I started meditating, I think like senior year of high school or something like that, um, kind of as a way to like prep for basketball games. And okay. I found this app to be nice because it's, it's this guy who was a Buddhist monk and just kind of came from Eastern society into the Western society, trying to bring meditation through this app. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's a really cool app. You could do Calm, you could do Insight Timers, another one I actually haven't heard of. Um, I think Calm's actually bigger than Headspace in terms of subscribers. So that's mm -hmm. a great one. Um, but yeah, I just, I'm like closing in on like 10,000 minutes, Mo. So I'm excited about that. But 10, I, yeah, but I feel like How they often say, do you do it? so I do it like every day, 10 minutes okay. in the morning, but wow. definitely not consistently over the past four years. It was never like every right. day. Like I would struggle to find that routine. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've been able to hit a good streak now. And I think, again, it's kind of like the pandemic. I'm, I'm getting good habits in the pandemic mm. in some ways. Yeah. And I'm trying to hope that they'll translate back to normal life. But Headspace has been like meditation has become way more consistent for me in That's quarantine. so awesome. Yeah. That is something that I would never have guessed about you when I first met you. You know, like. Really? Just like this like basketball guy <laughs> meditates every morning. It's awesome. Um yeah destigmatize that stuff for sure yeah like and and i feel like a lot of like the top performers do it like yeah. i kind of got inspired by kobe and lebron yeah. and all those guys and jordan so like just you know literally the top players kind of talked about the importance of that so i think it's become a little more mainstream now so I think yeah i agree thing, I definitely think. and with covid too i think there was a lot of focus on just mental health yeah um, yeah totally agree so yeah, so that's that. And then like on this vein of hobbies and quarantine, well, I got to ask you about your cooking journey. I gotta sure, ask you yeah. About that. So uh, I haven't been able to play Frisbee, so I had to pick up a new hobby. Right. Um, and cooking has sort of been that new hobby that I've developed, um, mainly because now I have a kitchen and at Princeton in the dorms, you didn't have your own kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think I actually find it very calming. Um, my boyfriend also really likes to cook and that was something that he developed in quarantine with me as well. There you go. Um, so it's it's a really fun activity for us to do together where we're not just like scrolling on our phones and sitting on the couch. Mm -hmm. um, and we sort of like, when we finish our work day, we just go to the kitchen and like start making something. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think, a very helpful, um, positive influence on my life um also because we both love to eat yeah. and we haven't been able to really go out to restaurants as much um so like we make the stuff we want to eat now which is awesome and it's like a lifelong skill you know I'm mm -hmm. no one can take away from me so um yeah it's been fun and I like to make a bunch of things so not just um it will my boyfriend part of his family is Italian so you know we make we learned his grandma's sauce a few months back, um, keeping those traditions going. But then also like I'll cook stuff, just Japanese dishes. Um, honestly, anything will do. Um, I think I'm going to try and do like a Thai curry later this week. Mm. Just a bunch of things we want to try. Um, yeah, it's good. Dude, that's awesome. Everybody needs to right now. I got to plug Mona's Instagram. <laughs> Kidding Mona's me. Kitchen Story. Mona's Kitchen Story, spelled like Mona, her name, M-O-N-A. And then everybody knows how to spell Kitchen Story, I think, on Instagram. <laughs> and go check it out for some delectable meals. She's really crushing it on there. I got it up there, so I had to plug I, it. I literally don't even post on my normal original <laughs> Instagram account anymore. 
and I only I basically follow a bunch of other foodies on my kitchen story account and it's awesome because it's like you know sometimes you go on social media and it's all like a negative thing or something but like when I go on my cooking account it's just food right where I go to get inspired and talk about things that I like so right no and I love what you said about how you and Jay your boyfriend kind of just do it together and it's something you have to do every day because you got to eat you know what I'm saying unless you want to order out which is not you know the greatest thing if you can afford not to like I feel like that's something I'm trying to work on is you know that I I said I said Mona like all these pictures of vids like ML is working in the kitchen trying to be like you Mona (laughs) but I'm like so rudimentary but I feel like it's it's a good thing to try to get in the, the mindset of enjoying that and kind of saying like, I got to do this anyway, so I might mm-hmm. as well make it fun. And yeah. so like, do you have any tips for me? Like you said, you get inspired from like Insta foodies and stuff. Like do you, I, I kind of do that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I told you, I do the same thing on every day, like weekly. So like, yeah, like yeah, Tuesdays, yeah. my spaghetti and pasta. And, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and it's great. Like it's nice routine, but like, do you have any tips for trying to get more into that and just getting more out of your cooking? I don't know. Definitely. I honestly understand that struggle. Like we have, even though we cook a lot, we end up making a lot of the same thing. Yeah. Like we have pasta once a week on Mondays or whatever. Of um, tips I have, I think we, we got a couple cookbooks recently and just like flipping through that is always fun because you kind of see things that you would never thought you'd make, but it looks good. So you try it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess Instagram is the same way too. You kind of see people making stuff and try, you just try it out. Um, right. And in terms of making the process a lot more enjoyable, I think it's enjoyable when you like cut and prepare all of your ingredients first. Okay. They call it mise en place or something like that. Okay, okay. French. Um, and Jason also says this as well, but like you prepare all your stuff and you just have it there and then you go on to the cooking process and it's just like less chaotic. Everything's clean. Um, I don't know. It's, it makes the process way more enjoyable for both of us. And it sounds really stupid when I'm no. just talking about it like this, but like no. you prepare all your stuff first and then you just like bring it over to whatever, the stove, and then you start cooking in the pan. Um, yeah. Mo, that sounds genius. Doesn't sound stupid <laughs> at all. Like you're giving me two tangible ideas here. I'm always about tangible. So we got cookbook and then I want to like mise en place, yeah. set it up, mise right? Yeah. And so do you set it up like, you don't set up early in the day because you don't want the food to go bad, but you're saying just segmenting your cooking experience to like getting everything out and then doing it. Okay. It's not necessarily the most efficient time-wise because sometimes it's like more efficient time-wise to just like cut the garlic right before you're putting it in or something like that. But like mentally it's nice. You just chop all your, like you do all your chopping and then you can put that away. And then you're focused only on, the like cooking part now on the heat part so right um everyone's different but I think that helps a lot I feel like I'm so lazy mo like I was chopping girl garlic yeah. earlier in the summer with Sarah at her house and like and then I got home <laughs> and we had like garlic kind of like pre-chopped in the yeah. in the little like you know whatever you call that thing yeah, shaker yeah, yeah, yeah. and like is that garlic worse is that not taste as good do you feel like it's like fresher if you chop it up like I've in heard- the moment I've heard that it's worth chopping it up, but also like if that jar or whatever, like pre-cut thing is going to make you cook more, like why not? You know, like, and I think also like I say that I like cooking and stuff, but like we like to order once or twice a week too. And we enjoy that too. And like, I think as soon as it becomes a huge chore, then it becomes not fun. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, no, I feel like, like if you also you know, pick a day when you want to order. It's almost like an anticipation, God, I can't talk, anticipation thing where you kind of know like, okay, this is my like order out day and I don't have to cook. And then like, you can pick like where you want to order. So, you know, looking forward to things is always nice. Yep, definitely. But okay. And then sort of on, you know, the topic of cooking as well. Mm -hmm. And I I know we're like almost, we're pretty much over time already, Mo. So this this could be the last thing. If anyone's still listening. (laughs) (laughs) Facts. Um, Yeah, because like I wanted to ask you about this in the beginning, but we started talking about medicine, classic pre-meds. Classic. It was great. 
But so I wanted to just kind of like, this was one of the things I was most excited about was just hearing about your experience growing up in Japan, but then you also have the London element and the Hawaii element. Mm -hmm. And like, I feel like you and I have never really talked about this too deeply. And so I don't know if I have any like preset questions, but like, I know you went to an American school in Japan, right? So can you kind of like talk about that? And like, is that different than the normal schooling system Mm -hmm. in Japan? And like, what kind of led you down that path? And then I I think you mentioned there was a lot of diversity in that school. So people from Mm -hmm. everywhere and like, what is Japan like? Like I've heard, like, I just want to hear more about it. Like, it's pretty cool, right? Let me try to do my home country some justice. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was born and raised in Japan for basically most of my life. Um, I lived there until I was 18. Tokyo? Um, in, in Tokyo. Japan? Okay. So people ask, like, where in Japan? I was in Tokyo, in the city, in the hustle and bustle. But mm-hmm. I tell them it's not as crazy as New York because it really isn't. Um, really? It's not as dense. And okay. there's not as, Yeah. Um, it's a little more spread out and residential, I think. But um, that's where I grew up. Um, throughout my entire like educational career, I had been going to some form of international school. Um, and the ones that I went to in particular were the American international schools. So what that means is the education system and the curriculum taught is based on the American curriculum. So it's... Okay. At my high school, for example, we had AP US history, we had Mm. AP world history, um, AP calc, like things that students in the US would have taken too. Um, The biggest difference maybe is that like Japanese was more of like a mandatory language requirement. Mm. So you, I had Japanese class every single day for an hour, but then everything else like chemistry, math, all of that you know, science, math, English, language arts, that kind of stuff. Social studies wasn't taught in English wow. um, using like American textbooks and whatnot. Um, so this is actually very different from what would have happened if I'd gone to Japanese school because okay. in Japanese school, everything is taught in Japanese and the textbooks, for example, I think are, you know, they have national textbooks and mm. um so sort of the consequence of that is, yes, now I speak, honestly, English is my first language now. Um, it wow. wasn't my first language. Like I learned to speak Japanese earlier, but now I'm way more fluent in English mm. um, and I consider it my first language. But um, that's mainly because I did all of my reading and writing and even math and science in English. Um, yeah. And so I don't have any of that terminology in Japanese. Um, But because my mother and my entire mother's side is Japanese and mostly just speak Japanese, Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate to sort of have that language. um, Not even, I didn't have to learn it. It was just part of me when I grew up. It was always being spoken around me. Um, And obviously I had the classes at school too, but it was very much not like learning a second language at all. Um, So that's sort of like my educational path. Um, My dad who is technically my stepdad but Mm -hmm. he you know has been my father figure since I was four or five Mm -hmm. um he's American so he had a huge influence on where I sort of ended up with college and wanting to go to the U.S. wow um and also just me going to international school and staying in international school throughout the whole Mm -hmm. middle school high school journey um and so, yeah, I decided I wanted to go. Honestly, it wasn't even in my head that I would potentially go to college in Japan by the time I was in high school. Wow. Because my, college, my high school was um, filled with students who just had the goal of going to college in the U.S. And right. we had counselors that were trained to get kids into colleges in the U.S. Okay. Um, so in fact, I would be going against the grain or like, you know, I wouldn't have had the skills to go into normal Japanese system colleges, um, I think. Um, and also because my Japanese isn't as strong, I think. Um, and so I didn't even really question it um, when I was applying to college in terms of why I ended up choosing, you know, 
going to a liberal arts school, like that was a big thing for me because I knew medicine had always sort of been part of like, maybe I want to be a doctor, but I wasn't sure. And in Japan, you sort of choose at 18, whether or not Mm. you're going to become a doctor um, and you go straight into it. And so I knew I wanted to learn more about everything. And that was what liberal arts is, you know? Um, And so that's why I ended up looking at those schools mainly. And then um, ended up at Princeton, which is, has been an amazing place. Um, and I met wonderful people like you. Um, so that's sort of my background. Um, wow. And then obviously because of my father, I've also had this American influence within the house as well. So it's sort of like a meshing of Japanese and American culture within my household. Um, yeah. And then sort of where London comes into the mix Honestly, it was just this year or last year that my father, after 20 whatever years in Japan, got a new job in London. And Mm -hmm. so they relocated there. Um, And so my immediate family now lives in London. But um, yeah, Japan is what I consider home and where I grew up. And the last, I guess, detail that you mentioned is Hawaii. So um, my dad or my parents have a apartment in Hawaii. So we were very fortunate mm-hmm. um, enabled, we got to escape the cold winter months and spend um, a good chunk of the year in Hawaii during the mm-hmm. summers and the winters. Um, and it's, uh, I did actually a lot of my internships and stuff there. So I got to know not just the like island as an outsider like traveling there but also I got to work there and see some of the communities there and it's it's really cool um Hawaii itself is also very diverse much more diverse than Japan um and you have people from all different cultures and they identify as American but also they identify themselves as sort of separate from the mainland Americans Mm -hmm. um so yeah I, I will always have a special you know, place in my heart for Hawaii, and I hope I can go back there after the pandemic. But um, yeah. Wow. Well, I literally have so many questions. I'm trying to keep this brief because I know we're like almost <laughs> over an hour now. But wow. Okay. So that's amazing. And so you explain kind of the difference between American and Japanese schooling system, and then sort of like where London came in, and then Hawaii. And then I guess one of my questions is like. Did your dad meet your mom, your stepdad meet your mom, mm-hmm. like on work or was your, like, how did that happen? Just kind of curious. Yeah, yeah. They actually met at work. Okay. Um, she was working as like a secretary in the same financial firm that he was working for at the oh. time, which no longer exists. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is pre-2008. Um, right. But that's where they met. And then, um, yeah, the rest is sort right. of history. And then what's like the climate like? I feel like this came to my mind because yes. you, you mentioned this is why it came to my mind that it's colder in Japan. For some reason, I never even in the winter, but mm-hmm. I never even thought of like, you know, what's it like versus the Northeast, for example, where you're in New York City right now? I would say it's actually slightly milder than New York City. Okay. Um, definitely than like New England. Um, the one thing is the summers are very very hot so like Mm. late july august is very hot and humid i heard that the humidity is awful (laughs) um but the spring and summer uh, spring and fall are beautiful um and the winter depending on where you are in japan like some areas will get a lot of snow and you can ski and all that and then Mm -hmm. but tokyo is a little more mild so you only get snow maybe once or twice a winter okay Um, and it's not ever a huge amount okay yeah so that's super interesting and then you said you were living like right there in the city in Tokyo Mm -hmm. not quite as dense as New York City and so you know what was sort of the culture this is like an interesting question I feel like to think about because like I went to a public high school in the suburbs so there's like a different culture than you know like a private school in the suburbs or a private school Mm -hmm. in the city of America and so it's just like interesting to think what was your culture like at your high school and especially it was also people coming from different places so Mm -hmm. did you like was it boarding or like it wasn't boarding it It wasn't normal day school but okay um sort of to 
I always think of sort of the international school community as a little bit of a bubble because definitely we are private schools. So the student body in general, I don't want to speak for everybody, mm-hmm. but like, especially compared to, for example, my college group friends or whatever, like everyone kind of came from a similar socioeconomic background okay, okay. and we're in general very privileged um, to be because the tuition is a lot to be able to have that kind of American education in Japan. Right. Um, so definitely, I, I think when we talk about diversity in terms of socioeconomic diversity, like I got so much of that once I got to college um, and I didn't realize I was missing out on that mm-hmm. um, or like how unaware I was of that. Um, so definitely that is something, but it was really cool just to grow up with people, I think who didn't necessarily associate themselves with a single culture. And for me, that happened to be like Japanese and American culture, but also there are people who were um, children that grew up in a bunch of different international schools around the world because their, their um, parents needed to travel for mm-hmm. work every few years um, and relocate. So. You know, I had friends that grew up partially in Pakistan and then Switzerland wow. and then somehow ended up in Japan for high school. Um, so that's that was really cool. But I think we also have our own identity. Of, they, they often also say like third culture kid where like I, I kind of I think it's like an overused or a little cliche term, but um, like not fitting in with a single identity and mm-hmm. it's more like that international identity that they um, identify with. But yeah I think that was something it's never really it never really bothered me as a kid that I didn't fit in necessarily but I don't think I necessarily saw it as a benefit or like something really positive that has helped me Mm -hmm. until honestly when I was writing my med school application for sure and writing the secondaries like reframing it as not like I don't fit in as completely Japanese or completely American but more like I am able to see the viewpoints of both sides or you know mm. see the differences and the similarities between mm. people of different cultures um yeah <laughs> i love how you're able to frame that differently right that's a huge takeaway um yeah. because that's one thing that i you know kind of admire right is that uh i feel like it's all kind of set up for me and that you know i have my friends from home and like we're all kind of from the same place and it's it's mm-hmm. just it's very easy to like bond with those people because it's you have all those similarities and just shared experiences yeah. but um, you were kind of just brought up in a different environment where there was always that bicultural situation and mm-hmm. like multicultural because people are coming from literally everywhere and so I think that might have you know potentially made it hard for you or, or like feel like oh I don't know you know where I do fit in like you said but mm-hmm. I think you have such a superpower and such a skill you know because you have that experience mm-hmm. and I just think it's dope. And so thanks for like sharing about that. That's really, really cool. Yeah, definitely. And my grandfather, who is very Mm -hmm. un-Japanese when you go for the stereotype that a lot of Japanese people like to conform to the crowd and Mm. sort of not like to stick out like a sore thumb. Like my grandfather was the complete opposite of that. Um, He was a fashion designer and like loved loud clothing and Mm. stuff. But I remember when I interviewed him for some school project, he always said, um, like, you should sort of treasure your differences. And like, it's a good thing to stand out from the crowd. And I think not even just like being a Japanese person or anything like that, just like as a teenage girl growing up, I always Mm -hmm. wanted to fit in with the crowd or like look like everyone else. Right. And so I think about his comments now that I'm older and like, going through again like a med school process it's all about how do you stand out like how do you make yourself stand out so it's like I think you have to learn that I've learned that it's a good thing that I have all of these different experiences that set me apart from other people and that makes me interesting and um, yeah it's not something to fear or like be ashamed about at all (laughs) exactly I love it look at Mo so inspirational that's amazing (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I feel like couldn't agree more with what you said and, and major respect to your grandpa. And it's awesome that you get to, you know, think about his words, you know, and, and have those words live on yeah. because that's what it's all about. Right. Just kind of leaving that impact. And so, Mo, I feel like I took too much of your time already. No, but I could I talk like, to you forever. You know that. <laughs> yeah, this was so fun. I feel like we, we mixed it up. 
covered a lot of topics, yeah, but um, sh- we, we covered a lot. And so thank you again, Mo. This has been awesome. And uh, I feel like I barely scratched the surface. So definitely want to have you back and we'll obviously talk offline more for sure. Yep. Yep. But this is awesome, Mo. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for everyone listening. If you've been doing it this far, y'all are champs. Um, for real. Yeah, this has been super fun and I uh, can't wait for more sessions. Amazing. Bless up. Peace. Peace.